Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight, we're doing something a little different. Our guest tonight will share her full story on a later episode, but for now, she's going to go into great depth on two specific chapters of her story, and it's our hope that every listener will benefit. And we really believe everyone will experience these chapters in some way, shape, or form in their lives because our guest tonight is going to be talking about the aging process from her experiences as a granddaughter, and then again many years later as a daughter. We want you to stay tuned for the full episode because, um, and especially if you're entering a season of caring for aging loved ones, because after she shares her story chapters, our guest is going to give you some key takeaways that I, I know will help you. Okay, so now it's my pleasure to welcome our guest, who is a Southern Bell Steel Magnolia Spitfire of a lady. If you've ever seen The Blind Side and remember Sandra Bullock's character, you've basically met this woman. She's largely responsible for who I am today and has been praying for me since before I was born. Tonight's guest is Jeannie Birch, and she's my mama. So thanks, Mom, for agreeing to tackle this pretty big and tough subject. Would you give our listeners a little snapshot of who you are? It will be my pleasure. I am basically a Southern gal who has had a lot of experience in the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. I'm a trainer by profession, so I have taught everything from swimming to pre-retirement classes to conflict management to presentation skills, and in doing so, I was able to use some of the experience that I had in my life. So, and I am now considered a retired lady in Nashville, Tennessee, after living 40 years in California. So back in Tennessee and uh, sharing what I know, uh, hope to be a mentor type woman to people. Well, thank you. We're glad that you're willing to do this because it's one of those topics that a lot of people know is coming, but they don't like to talk about. So what we're going to do is we kind of have three parts here. We're going to hear your story from when you were a little girl and what your parents went through in caring for your maternal grandparents. And then we're going to take a look at what you went through caring for your parents. And in our kind of third part is just all of those little details that you've learned that can help not only the decision-making process, but how to keep a family together as much as possible during really a situation that causes a lot of division. So Mm -hmm. will you take us back, quite a bit back? (laughs) What year are we starting? Um, I'm going to be six years old in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the early 50s? Yes. Um, First, first I just want to, I really want to thank you for letting me do this. I think that it is unbelievably exciting to be on my own daughter's podcast. I've never, ever thought I'd be doing this. So this is fun. I love this ministry. I love your church. And I think it's a fabulous platform for women to share their hearts, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I am a firm believer that each one of us needs to be sharing and it's healthy for our souls. So thank you for, for this opportunity. So I believe it's important for, for people to just kind of know this. I believe that caregiving has really been a theme of my life. For the time I was three, I was caring for my dolls and my dogs and my chickens and my kittens, you name it. If I thought there was a need, I jumped in to help. Of course, I never realized that that might actually be a gift from God. So now at 72 years old, I can look back and I think I believe it was. I want everybody to know I am not an expert. I am sharing from my experiences, but I did learn from experts. And I believe many, many people might be going through something right now, might have already been faced with this, and they're caring for loved ones, and they've never done it. They're just a little bit clueless about where to start, what to do, who to turn to. So I hope that I can give some pointers. Um, So as Jessica said, stay tuned. At the very end, I'm going to do a couple of bullets that you might want to jot down. 
I began my experience as a caregiver, as a granddaughter. And I thought about how do I just tell my mom's story, because that's what I was living. And I thought, I would just like to read a paragraph or two from her own words, because she wrote her life story. And you will see how this weaves into mine, or I wove into hers. So this is my mom. She's speaking. Two days before Christmas in 1954, my dad got burned. He was lifting a pan of boiling water with a ham in it from a stove. He slipped and fell in the boiling liquid. It went all over his right hip and both legs. He had a third degree burn on his hip and second degree burns on both legs. He would not go to the hospital. Since mother wasn't able to care for him, we took him to our house. We got a hospital bed and a special heat lamp. Dad was 85 and mother was 79. No one thought he would get well. I have never prayed so much. God was with me as I tackled this task. I had faith and with the help of a dear doctor who guided me medically through this, my son Jim, who faithfully helped me for a month before he left for the army, I was equal to the task. My ever-devoted husband was always near me when he was needed. And our son Jack was a big help when he wasn't busy with the crops on the farm. Jeannie was only six, but seemed to understand on some level what was going on. I was the chief cook and nurse, and of course, there was much laundry to do to keep Dad's burned skin sterile. I did have a washing machine by then, but no dryer. Now, I want to stop Mother's story and mention this. We did not have running water when we lived on that farm and when my grandparents came. My mother had two older sisters. They all helped differently, but nothing like what my mother was about to go through. The oldest sister was financially better off, and she decided immediately she had better step in, and she paid for the plumbing and for the indoor water so that mother could actually have running water in the home to wash Papa's bandages and sheets and everything you can imagine that you have to have in a burn unit that was in your living room. So back to mother's story. I nursed my dad around the clock. This went on for five months. The doctor would come out each day, usually at lunch. Now, can you imagine people, the doctor comes to your house to visit to see how you're doing? Okay, that's, that doesn't happen today. This was 1954. Back to mother. She prepared two vegetables, meat, biscuit, cornbread, salad or dessert, and a drink every day for her father and fed him three meals a day. After three months, mother says, new tissue began building up in my dad's hip and new skin began to grow. The doctor told me my dad would not have made it if I had not given him the constant care, but I gave the credit to God. He gave me the strength to do the work. That was her mom's life story. That's what I witnessed at six years old. And I can remember standing beside the hospital bed watching her change the bandages and keep everything clean and not knowing what was going on. But I just remembered it was constant. She didn't sit down from the minute her feet hit the floor in the morning. Now, during this time, my grandmother, we called her mommy, was beginning to show signs of Alzheimer's disease. Now, it was called hardening of the arteries back then, so she was of no help to Papa. In fact, she was causing more trouble for everybody. My grandparents went back to their home in 1955 after six months at our home. But in July, my Papa had a stroke that put him in a wheelchair, and they came back to live with us again. A few months later, my grandmother had to have bladder surgery. She recovered, but believe me, she was not the same. The Alzheimer's was much worse. But in 1956, right after Christmas, they found someone to stay in their home with my grandparents and allowed them to go home. By now, I had experienced our life disrupted several times. Grandparents were coming in and going. Life was different than it was normal. Then it was different again. As a little girl, all I knew that his mother was tired and stressed. And I didn't know what I could do to help her. I tried to be very good. I thought that would be a good thing to do. We had a little break, but in eight months, life changed again. 
The couple that was staying with my grandparents refused to stay any longer because my grandmother was making everyone miserable. She was in full-blown Alzheimer's, but nobody knew it. Nobody labeled it. Nobody knew what to label. And let me just say that there were no support groups for Alzheimer's then. As a matter of fact, there was very little medical knowledge of what that disease was, or was it even a disease? Certainly no suggestions on how to navigate the years of decline. In fact, my mother was challenged by her own sisters. There was nothing wrong with their mother. She was just tired from taking care of their father. So, you know, there wasn't anything wrong with her mother. This was very, very hurtful. And I think some people might experience that with their siblings or even their husband or, or children saying, oh, you're just tired. Well, you are tired. <laughs> Believe me, you are. But there could be other things going on and, and you're not getting credit for knowing that. So since my grandparents refused to leave their home now, my parents were faced with a big decision. Once again, quoting from mother, she said, I really felt like Jonah must have felt when God wanted him to go to Nineveh. I prayed there would be someone to stay with my parents, but God told me, you go. So I had to go. The next three years were the hardest years of mother's life. She says, I needed to be three people. That November, dad had the second stroke that put him in the bed for six months. He would often yell, come on, over and over. When someone would come, he would look at the ceiling and not say a word. When we left, he began calling, come on, again and again. He wouldn't let anyone feed him but me. I fed him three meals a day for six months. And in April 1957, God called him home. Those were the years that I remember the most. I was nine at this time. My world had turned upside down. I'd already been in three schools, and I was only in the third, almost fourth grade. My brothers were 20 and 24. They were in college or the Army. I was alone with grandparents who were needing every minute of my mother's attention. So I, again, thought I would just be good. But I learned to take them food, pick up dishes, stand by my papa's bed when he yelled, and follow mommy around so that she wouldn't wander off somewhere. One thing that was kind of fun, though, my mother thought it would be good for me to take piano lessons. That would be something special for her little girl. Well, I'm about as musical as an aunt, and I was not enjoying them one bit. I would come home from a session, sit down at the piano, and plunk out the notes to each new piece. One day, mommy came and sat down on the piano bench with me. She began to copy what I was playing. I didn't know this at the time, but she had played for the church for years. She couldn't read music, but she played by ear. So she was listening to me play the notes, and she was copying them perfectly. Well, I soon figured out, hey, once she's got it down, I can leave. So I'd go outside, and I'd play, and my mother thought I was practicing and practicing. Uh, needless to say, my piano lessons ended rather quickly, and uh, Mommy kept playing my piano pieces. <laughs> that was kind of the only happy memory of the next three or four years. As my mother's story says, her mother's mind was gone. She didn't know to go to the bathroom. She did not want to take a bath or have her hair washed. We used alcohol on cotton balls to wipe her hair to try to keep it from smelling. I remember watching my mother holding mommy's hand in a strong grip so she could bathe her and change her. All the while, she might be peeing and having a bowel movement right on the floor. I tried to offer assistance, and I did, but it was not enough to really help my mother, who was now just about at her breaking point. After Papa died, my mommy would not go to bed. She would only sleep about 15 or 20 minutes at a time sitting in a chair. She began to wander during the night. We would find her in the kitchen at 2 a.m. cooking eggs, sausage, and biscuits. After finding her with a butcher knife one time, my parents decided they had to lock the door at night so she wouldn't hurt herself. They explained this to me, and I understood, but we didn't expect what was going to happen next. She would stand at the door banging on it, yelling, let me out, all 
night long. Mother was trying to sleep. The only hour she slept was from midnight to 4 a.m. By now, she had lost 13 pounds. She really, truly was at the end of her rope. And in April of 1959, my grandmother joined my grandpa. Mother's story says, I shed lots of tears, but God gave me the strength to keep going. My dear husband gave me the love and support I needed all the way. Our sons helped on weekends or when they were home. Jeannie was 11 by this time. She was so helpful and sweet during this period that we called her Pollyanna. Besides scripture, there was a poem that I read often to keep me going. We always want the sunshine, but he knows there must be rain. We love the sound of laughter and the merriment of cheer, but our hearts would lose their tenderness if we never shed a tear. So whenever we are troubled and our life has lost its song, it's God testing us with burdens just to make our spirit strong. That's by Helen Steiner Rice. I didn't know she was reading that. I knew her Bible was open many times, but I really didn't know the depth of her exhaustion. My life had been affected by caregiving now for six years, from age six to 12. The lessons learned, the things I saw, the sacrifice I witnessed my mother and daddy make had a significant impact on me. I had no idea that I would be asked to develop and deliver the first pre-retirement program for the state of Tennessee in the mid-70s. Boy, I drew from my childhood experiences. I went to seminars, I learned from experts, and the program was a success. The sessions of that program, interestingly, are still applicable today. We all need to pay attention to legal and financial matters, housing, our health, and the emotional support system as we age. You know, I've heard you share those stories so many times. And, and just to paint the picture, I mean, when you said that, that your mother, my grandmother, lost 13 pounds, that might not sound like a big deal to somebody who never saw her or met her, but she was, she was a thin woman. Right. She was about 124 pounds when she lost the 13. And she was a, uh, about five six, so she was just skin and bone. She she had a, a gorder, which is a thyroid condition. She ended up having to go to bed for two weeks. They said you, you have to be waited on for two weeks, and she really had no problem doing that because she was absolutely exhausted. And after that, she actually did have to have some major surgeries to just repair her her bladder and her body because she had just lifted and pulled and tugged and waited on people. She, she had been a nurse, a nurse aide, a doctor, a physical therapist, a cook, nutritionist for all the years with her parents. So she was worn out. In fact, in, in light of all of these heavy chapters in the story, there are some quite funny moments. And if I remember correctly, after her surgery, she, she called at you in great concern and you had to explain a string to her. Do you want me to share that? <laughs> there are women listening, right? <laughs> so this is uh, 1960. My mother was born in 1912. She had never known anything but a pad. And when the doctor had released her from the hospital, he had inserted a tampon. She did not know what that was. She had never seen one. I was 12. I was home from school when you know, my, my mom was home and she got up and went to the bathroom and she screamed for me, Jeannie, get in here. Well, I thought she was dying. Uh, she'd just come home from the hospital. I thought she was going to die in the hospital. She didn't. She came home and now she's dying here in the bathroom. So I didn't know what was going on. I ran in there. She's points. And I said, what? And she said, what is this string? <laughs> I, okay, I have not started my period yet. I don't know what that string is. I think stitches are coming out. I have no idea. She said, do you think I should pull it? I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. So she said, well, call Dr. Sue. 
Well, our next door neighbors, the husband and the wife were both doctors. Dr. Sue happened to be home. I called her. She comes flying over. She goes into the bathroom and they burst into hysteria. So I kind of get a clue that everything's okay because they have to explain to me what this is because I don't know. And, you know, she said, no, it's perfectly all right. If you want to pull that, that is a tampon. So this just gives you a little idea of the personality of my mother. Always the person who had the question and needed the answer and involved me. She never hid anything from me. So, yeah, my mom was a character. Quite a character. <laughs> she, yeah. she was. She was. And she had definitely just devoted her heart, mind, body, soul, wore herself to the bone, caring for her parents, mm -hmm. and which led to needing a whole bunch of surgery, which of course led us into the, the funny tampon story. But, you know, <laughs> taking a break from the giggles for a moment, one of the things that I, that I think of so often with so many people is, what about the spouse? Mm -hmm. We, you know, we hear this story of what, of what my grandmother sacrificed for her parents. Mm -hmm. And we can easily go, oh my gosh, like that was so heroic and so sacrificial and, and how amazing. And, but, but her husband, my grandpa, that's a big deal for the spouse as well, especially when you're having your in-laws come in, whether exactly. it's one or both of them and what you're willing to sacrifice as well. And how do you make those decisions as a couple? And so I don't know if you have any strong memories of the conversations they had with each other or what this did or didn't do to their relationship. I don't really know many men that would have been able to walk through this with their wife like my dad did. If every woman could have a husband like my dad, the world would just be turned around right now. Happy, happy. He was the true Christ-like husband. Everything they did, they talked about it. Everything they did, they prayed about it. And most of the things that happened in our family were discussed at the dinner table with prayer. And I do remember being involved in, do you think we should move? Do you think they should come here? Now, I was little, and I probably wasn't even expected to have an answer. But dad and mother did exactly what they felt God wanted them to do. I can tell you that daddy had a very difficult time moving, leaving the farm that he loved, leaving that and moving in with my grandparents in their home. They even had to put some of their furniture in storage because it just meant, and, and, and when you do something like that, you don't know how long they're going to live. You don't know what the future is going to be. Dad had to take another job, uh, something he hated. And he was trying desperately to make enough money so that we could stay there and not use mother's parents' money. That was very low at that time. He was the sacrificial giver. And you will see, as I tell you their story, how much more he actually had to give later in life. And on that note... Right now, we're going to jump from the 1950s mm -hmm. into probably the 1990s would be when this next chapter began. A little bit before, because I think it's important that you know what decisions they made that led to us being able to take better care of them. After I had graduated from high school and college and moved out of the home, they moved to their dream location. It was called Spring Creek Farm. It was 100 acres just outside of the town of Springfield. And it really was a magical place that I brought all of my friends to. It was just a place of home and safety and support. But it was a lot to take care of. And they were in their 70s at this time. They had three gardens. Mother had 137 rose bushes. They had a half acre to mow. They had fences to paint, not to mention dad's cattle and hogs and horses and crops. It was just too much. And this is when my brother, my older brother, stepped in. He said, we need to talk about you all moving. Well, is anybody hearing a funny little word moving? 
moving your parents, talking to your parents about actually moving to a safer place, an easier place, no steps, whatever. It did not go well. It really didn't. They were in their dream life. And, and I'm sure, Mother, I actually heard her say once, I'm just now in my happy place. I love it here. No, I don't want to leave this. And Daddy, uh, a farmer, a, a hunter, a outdoorsman, no, he did not want to leave his creek and his buttercups and his fields and his wonderful place. However, they were wise. And they prayed about it, and they had a good memory. They remembered what they had gone through with mother's parents. So they agreed they needed to move. And with my brother's help, they found a lovely home. And in 1986, they were 76 and 74. They made a huge move from their farm into town. It was only four and a half miles, but it might as well have been four states because they didn't have the farm. Dad really sacrificed for that one. Now, they, they kept some land at the farm, so he still had a farm to go to, but uh, they launched into making this home, and it would be their forever home other than heaven. And believe me, in just nine years, they both were saying, thank you, Jim, for mentioning this to us because Daddy had a stroke. So in 1995, my dad was 85 years old. He had a stroke that it did not affect his mind, but it did paralyze his right arm and hand and severely damaged the strength in his right leg. He was sent to rehab for six weeks, and I made plans to fly to Tennessee with my daughter, Jessica, and we were to evaluate his needs and equip the home. So this was the first of several things you're going to hear that happened to them in their journey of aging. I just want to let you know that I, you know, I had two amazing brothers. They lived close. They were in Tennessee. And I had asked them to go over and begin to equip the home with bars in the bathroom and ramps to come in from outside and da da da. Well, I got there and I realized that they had done so. However, the bathroom was not really equipped properly. The bar was on the side of the paralyzed hand. So I made a little suggestion to my older brothers that they go into the bathroom, close the door, and try to take their pants down with one hand and get up again with one hand with their hand on the opposite side. Now, I didn't go in to see what happened, but it didn't take but three or four minutes till they came out and they were getting their toolbox out and switching the bar. I think the point here is that you, if you have a situation where you've had someone with arthritis or a stroke or whatever the reason that they have some limited mobility, pretend you are them. Try to eat a meal with one hand, the opposite hand of your natural birth. Try to go to the bathroom. Try to take a bath. Try to change your clothes. Do whatever it is that they might be struggling with as if you are them. It will change your mind on the empathy that you give them and what you might go out and buy for them, what you could do to help them. So uh, needless to say, the handle was put on the other side. Dad was happy. And um, actually during the next few months, everything was beginning to settle wonderfully. I I was flying back and forth still from Tennessee to get from California to Tennessee. Dad had an electric scooter and he was excellent with it. Later on, I don't even talk about it, but mother got a scooter. We have all broken toes and probably every counter in the kitchen had a mark on it. She was absolutely the most horrifying driver on that scooter. So uh, we just had to get out of her way. Daddy was excellent. So he was navigating the world beautifully. I was able <clears throat> to get them some, or get Daddy, some special plates that had sides on them and utensils and cups with handles. I tried to make life as absolutely as easy as possible. Now, their resources were going quickly. So I was getting... A lot of chatter from both brothers saying, you're spending too much money on these things. 
I would spend it all again because it made their life incredibly easy. And guess what? I guarantee you my brother's going to be using some of that stuff later because I saved it all. And it's just, it's just worth it. It's just worth it. The embarrassment of food being spilled on a plate because they can't scoop it like they, they normally would. Having a little edges on the plate is just wonderful. So all of that was going well. Well, in December of that same year, mother had an attack of diverticulitis that sent her to the hospital for 10 days. We almost lost her. And we suddenly had to find someone to take care of daddy because my brother couldn't. He was working. My other brother couldn't. And I was in California. <clears throat> so God sent an angel. Her name was Judy. And she ended up staying with us for 14 years. She was amazing. She came from 7 a.m. to 3 all of those years. As things would get worse in the future, we hired another angel named Willie Mae, and she offered to stay at night. My older brother took a lot of the load off so that they could have weekends. And, of course, I came in as often as I could and would stay for two weeks. I think the things that happened during those decision-making, I mean, it's, all, it's so easy to, to tell your story in reverse. But when it's happening, your siblings might not be agreeing with you. And they might think you're trying to boss, or I might think they're trying to boss. And it was hard because I was not in the same city, even the same state. And I just had to go on and do some things without their permission. And if you really want to know hurtful things were said, things that needed to be forgiven, they have been forgiven, but some of them aren't forgotten. But we move on, we love each other, and it, it's, it's history. But it does happen. So if you think you're going to navigate this with whether it's one sibling or six, um, you know, it's not. it's not. It's not going to be as smooth as you might hope it to be. So what happened next is mother came home from the hospital recovering well, and we flew our parents, my parents, to California for 10 weeks. And uh, all I can tell you is that it was amazing. My roses looked better than they had ever looked, and life was going really well. Kaboom, 1998, mother broke her hip. She didn't fall. She was just standing at the kitchen sink, and it broke. Okay, that was another big change. She did great. She was walking in record, record time for an 86-year-old, but daddy and mother were getting weaker. It was just a slow decline. By 2003, daddy had another small stroke. This time, he really had to go to bed. His kidneys were not working well, and he was having many accidents. When I would come in, there were many nights when I had to change him and the bed sheet several times. Now, mother couldn't hear thunder, and she slept through everything. So she did not understand why I could possibly be tired the next day. Because she didn't know I had been up almost all night. And daddy was sleeping because he was finally dry and happy. <laughs> and I was now needing to give mother care. And may I just say that it's a very humbling experience to have to bathe and change your father. Dad and I were very close, and we really understood each other. I did everything I could to preserve his dignity, to keep him covered, to ask him what he wanted, and it, it, was, it worked beautifully for both my mother and my father. So finally, I said to the doctor, this will be another point you'll hear later, stay tuned, my dad, it's, it's not working. Diapers, pads, whatever. What else can be done? I finally convinced him, after doing a lot of research, to put in a suprapubic catheter. And it's just something that's inserted to the belly. And then there's a little bag on the outside of the bed. And Daddy was able to sleep all night. We were able to sleep. It was a lifesaver. But I, it took me eight months to convince this man. He would just say, well, just let him stay wet. This is a doctor. You don't do that to a 90-year-old man. You don't do that to anybody, even a baby. <laughs> so it was really challenging to have to work with this man, but 
he did agree. Dad had the little surgery. He was fine, and it worked for the rest of his life. I want you to know that at this point, I, I just please make a note that you are probably, you or someone in your family is going to be dealing with the doctors. And not so much my generation or a little bit older, but certainly my parents' generation, they believed that every single thing a doctor said was the law. There was no Google. You didn't question. You didn't go for a second opinion. Now that's much more common. But let me just give you one incident. I got a call. I was in California again. Got a call that daddy had turned yellow, was rushed to the hospital. I got a call from the doctor saying that he had pancreatic cancer and had three months to live. I tried to remain calm, and so I said, may I see the lab reports? Here's my fax number. Uh, what are his symptoms? I started gathering data, and I got another doctor's opinion. It turns out that he had gallstones blocking his bile duct. They power blasted him, and he was fine. So this doctor would have let him die because no other measures were going to be taken. He was hospitalized for two weeks. I was calling every day, and I found out if you call late at night when there's no visitors, I mean, it's totally different now with COVID, but you can call late at night about 11 o'clock. The shifts have changed. You get the nurse on duty. You even get a supervising nurse. You say, what's going on? I need my father's labs. and if you have power of attorney or permission, which you need to get, they will give it to you. I realized that he wasn't eating and I found out, so I flew in and I found out that they were wheeling his food in, putting it on the tray and walking out. Remember my dad has a paralyzed hand. He couldn't open his applesauce. He couldn't open his jello. He couldn't eat. So the nurse aide would come in to take his tray and they would note on the chart, patient refused food. He was literally dying. I absolutely went, I was mad. I was really, really mad. I got in that hospital room. Daddy looked up at me with the sweetest eyes and he said, thank you for coming. Are you going to take me home? I said, oh, yes, I am. And I wrote a letter to that hospital administrator who contacted me for more information. He personally came to my mother and daddy's home, apologized, and he arranged training classes for all of the people and the points that I had noted in that letter. You have to be their voices. Don't be shy. Ask questions. Get answers. Their comfort and sometimes their life may depend on you. I still cry thinking of him just looking at me. I, I, you know, you have to be their voice. But even with that, dad's health steadily declined. My trips were very hard. Like my mother before me, I averaged about four or five hours of sleep a night for the two weeks I stayed. I fly back to California sick almost every time. But I do it again. And in 2007, in January, Daddy moved to heaven. Now you might think, okay, Mama's gonna have a good life now. It didn't happen that way. A few days after my daddy's funeral, Mother celebrated her 95th birthday. The next day, she became very ill, vomiting, diarrhea. I was alone, the family had flown back after the funeral. And I wanted to stay a while to get her settled. I had to call 911. The doctor admitted her to the hospital with a UTI and exhaustion. Driving back to their home from the hospital that night was one of the darkest moments I had experienced. I didn't know what I was going to do. I needed to go back to my family in California. Mother needed help. I needed to find a full-time person, maybe two or three, to stay with her. Judy couldn't do it all. I prayed most of that night for wisdom. Got up, visited her at the hospital the next day. We had another doctor by this time, and her doctor kindly told me that he wanted to keep her in the hospital for three days, 
then admit her to a nursing home where she would go in without being on a waiting list. I already knew that rule. Mother knew that rule and gladly agreed to it. We had already interviewed some people at nursing homes. I kind of write that one down. Go check it out before you have to know. Get on a waiting list. You can always mark your name off. And now it was real. She was going to be admitted to a nursing home. Now, we've already heard a little bit about my mother. The one thing we never thought she would do is go to a nursing home. Well, to my total surprise, mother was completely agreeable. She told me to fly back to my family. She was fine. And we would discuss the next steps once she got to her room at the nursing home. Well, that's exactly what happened. We asked Judy to come to the nursing home from 7 to 3, just like she had been doing in their home. Two days after I returned to California, and I had already gotten all these people lined up to start helping her when she could come home. I called my mother, and she said, sit down. Well, when mother told you to sit down, you sit down. She had decided she loved the nursing home. The food, the staff, she wanted to stay. I was glad I was sitting down. I said, what? She said, I love it here. I'm the only one with my mind, so they love me. They're coming in and visiting, and I am just having the biggest time. I'm resting. I don't have anybody I have to take care of. They're taking care of me. I, I, I don't think there are many times in my life I couldn't speak, but that might have been a, a pretty long pause. God had answered a prayer and taken a huge burden off of my shoulders. It was settled. Now, you might think my life was easier. No, not really. I began to plan the trip still every three months. I was staying in their home, which was quickly beginning to need attention. After six months, mother was settled in, and the decision was made to distribute and sell the contents of my parents' home. That broke my heart because my mother had never even said goodbye to her home. She went from dad's funeral to the ER to the nursing home. So I quickly tidied up everything, got a video tape machine and taped the entire home, inside, outside, everything, and brought it to mother. She cherished that because she never really ever went back. By July of that year, I had packed up furniture, belongings, everything, and it was distributed or sold. I was now sleeping on a mattress on a floor. I had a box for a nightstand and a lamp. I basically had camping supplies in the kitchen to meet my needs. So that um, the sparse surroundings was my home every time I came back, every three months for the next three years. Now, although it may seem that life was easier as a caretaker, to my mother in a nursing home who had somebody there from seven to three every day, it was just different. It wasn't easier. I called every day at 11 o'clock my time, which was one o'clock her time. And we did have Judy to watch over things. And she kept a notebook and she would call me and she would say, da 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 da. And then I could follow up if I needed to. I won't tell you all the things that happened in the three years my mother was there, it, it would break your heart. And you would say, well, I'm never going to put my loved one in a nursing home. I don't mean to paint that picture. What I mean to say is things happen. Things happen in hospitals. Things happen in assistant living. They happen in nursing homes. You need to have someone that's checking on your loved one. You can't just put them in there and think everything's going to be great. Mother called me one day and said, I'm itching. I've got bites all over me. And Judy said, I don't know what this is, Jeannie. We, we cannot figure it out, but she's just, she's insanely miserable. So I came in. I got a flight as soon as I could, came in, took pictures. She had scabies. That's a big word for bed bugs. And the staff would not believe me. The nurse wouldn't believe me. The head of nursing wouldn't believe me. The hospital administrator wouldn't believe me. So once again, I documented. I took pictures. I asked for a biopsy. And when it came back, scabies, I wrote another letter threatening to call the health department and report it. 
Well, that got their attention because they could lose funding if scabies outbreak was reported in their facility. Everything. And that's just, it was a beautiful and wonderful nursing home. It just happens. Someone, a patient comes in with it and it gets transferred right away. So we got that settled. Let me just say that from daddy's stroke in 95 to mother's move to heaven in 2010, my life was challenging. There were times when I just didn't think I could get on another plane. I knew God would give me the strength and he did. I was using American Airline miles all those years. We knew we couldn't afford many more flights. And would you know that God arranged it that the last miles in my account were on my way to Mother's funeral? He is so good. I prayed and God answered. I believe that some of the things that helped me most was quoting scripture, but I printed it out. I printed it on the bathroom mirror. I had it in the car. I had it on the kitchen cabinets. I had it everywhere. I needed his word around me because there are times when you can't pray. You don't have any words. You're too tired. You do not know what the morning is going to bring. You, you think, okay, I can go ahead and have a luncheon with my friends. But no, you get a phone call that something's happened to your mother, your father, your aunt. So you have to literally capture the moments of joy. And you need to take care of yourself. And I can honestly tell you, I didn't do a very good job of that. But I did survive. I wouldn't do a thing differently, really. As I, as I look back, I don't think we would have done anything differently because we had learned so much from my grandparents. In hearing you reflect back on the 15 years of caring for grandma and grandpa, I, yeah. so many of those things I remember, but I was also young or in my teen years and not fully aware of some of the details. And I just think of what a great need there is for different personalities in caring for an aging loved one. Everybody in the family, I think, has something to offer. I, I really believe that everything that's needed, God has provided in somebody, somehow, some way. Maybe somebody has the ability to support financially. Maybe somebody is the, more of the sensitive emotional one that will write cards or visit or make the phone calls. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's somebody who might seem less emotional, but but that person has the just the ability to make hard decisions and think logically and ask questions and, and not not be overcome by emotion. They can kind of get get some things done. And and it's not that one loves the parent or grandparent more than the other necessarily at all, but just everyone's got a different tool to bring to the caretaking process. And it really, I mean, I know we hear the phrase all the time, it takes a village to raise a child. And it's sort of like, well, it takes a village for the last season of life as well. And and for some people, the aging and, and dying process happens suddenly and super fast. And in, in your case, for both grandma and grandpa, those were long drawn out years. Mm -hmm. But I think you learned significantly more than you mm -hmm. would have if the process had only been one year. And I know how mm -hmm. many people you've been able to just counsel mm -hmm. and and help and give everything from, like you said, the most practical, hey, uh, try it without that hand and see what it what it works and, you know, move you know, move a bar from point A to point B. The simplest thing makes all the difference in the world, all the way to something much bigger, where if there's something lacking within a hospital or a nursing home, mm -hmm. that you know the steps to take to get that fixed. And sometimes, sometimes places are not doing a great job. Other times they're doing a fantastic job, but it's just the nature of the beast that things happen. So yes. with that, I know you've got some some specific takeaways to I share. do. And, and just, I want to just piggyback on one thing you said, as I might have painted myself as, you know, the, uh, the policeman that ran in and, and found everything wrong. But I want you to know that I wrote an awful lot of letters over the years that mother was in the hospital, the nursing home of thank you and of affirmation to people that, that had taken care of her. 
because I know that they don't get the affirmation as much either. And I, I would make sure that it got put in their personnel file. So I, I did that. I wanted to be a well-rounded caregiver. <laughs> but I think that was important. Okay, you ready? Get your pencils and your paper ready, ladies. Here we go. Point one, speak up. Now, what I mean by that is that most folks lose hearing or have hearing loss by the time they're 60. Most don't realize it, and some don't want to acknowledge it or admit it. So hearing is a key component in communication. If your loved one cannot hear you, much of the empathy, help, and love is lost. And just remember, when they are not looking at you, if they're not responding to you, they possibly can't hear you. So simple little step in dealing with the older folks. Point two, people don't like change. I do many workshops on that. <laughs> Aging is changing and people don't like it. So I want you to expect resistance. Sometimes we're aging slowly, sometimes it's fast, but expect resistance. Get a plan on how you want to begin to adapt to this. Number three, get help. You do not have to do this alone. There are magazines, there are resources, there's Social Security, there's AARP, there's Medicare, there are nursing homes that have pamphlets. You can't imagine how much help there is out there. Talk to someone who's gone through it. Contact me. You don't have to get it alone. do this alone. And even if it's just the help of a listening ear, that can be just as important as having somebody be able to do the occupational health for you or something like that. Housing and location. I, I really don't know if anybody but my mother and daddy has done this well. I, I'm serious. I've gone through this with my friends. No one has been willing to leave their home. You can talk to them about it when they're in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s. You don't know, you know, if they have long lives, my mother and dad lived to be 98, 96. So we started talking to them about it in, the, in their 70s. I'm thinking about it now. What do we need to do while we're healthy? We can pack. We can decide what we want to take, what we don't want to take. It's a huge discussion and it's very emotional and most people do not do well. Never go in with your opinion first. Always ask them. Tell them what you would like to talk about today and do not have the expectation that it will be solved in one, two, or 14 visits. So do it early. And it may, it just, you may realize right away it's not gonna be decided. Don't think you failed. It's more common than not. But try. The next point that I would like to share is finances. Trying to figure out what their assets are. Now, in my family's situation, it was actually easier because we didn't have wealth. Mother and daddy's money ran out well before their lives did, which made it quite wonderful in many ways. We were able to put the home in my brother's name because he had actually helped finance it. We put the car in his name. The farm had been sold. So by the time mother actually went into the nursing home, she had no assets but Social Security and qualified for Medicaid and everything was paid for for her. We paid for Judy, but we didn't have to pay for anything else. And that is not the situation. Most times you go in a nursing home, they take your house. You sign your, your assets to them, and they use that to pay for your facility. And it can be 10000 a month up. The next one is a will. It's the simplest thing in the world to get a will drawn up. You to have a legal will, you really do not have to have an attorney involved. You just have to have it notarized. One of the things that I think everybody knows, but they don't do it too well, is the, that 
you're reversing roles. They're your parents, and then you're their parents. And that's very awkward. It's very awkward for your child to be telling you what to do. And that's how they feel. That's exactly how they feel. How, why would you tell me what to do? I, I raised you. But the, the roles will reverse. Just think, if you ever tried to tell a teenager to change an outfit or not, not go someplace or, you know, don't be with a certain crowd, well, how did that go? Probably not too well. It's the same thing with your parents. So suggest first and then let them talk to you. Tell them what they're feeling. I did this, this with the clothes that they wore, the food that they ate, doctor's appointments. <laughs> and on that, the next point, I'm on point number eight. Try reverse psychology. Oh my goodness. We knew that my mother was a bit stubborn. We also knew about 4 or 4.30 she was hungry and was getting grumpy. But if you said, why don't you have a little snack? She'd say, no, it's too soon for supper. I don't, want I don't need a snack. So what I would do is I would fix some apple slices or cheese or peanut butter and cracker, and I would set them out on the table, and I would eat something. She would see me eat something. And I would say, oh, I don't think I want any more. I guess I'll just throw it out. Well, don't do that. Where have you got it? And she'd go in, have a snack, and would be delightful. She would have a sinus infection. We knew it was going to be horrible. Mom, you probably need to go to the doctor, see if it's your ears, your sinus. I do not need to go to a doctor. So I learned pretty quickly the signs. I could hear the cough. I knew it was coming. I'd say, oh, you know what? You just gargle your throat. You don't need to go to the doctor. You know what they're going to do. The next day, she'd have an appointment to the doctor. So try that. See if it works. You're not trying to be manipulative. You're trying to help them. Your goal is to make their life better. And if that's the way it works, wonderful. I didn't have to do reverse psychology for daddy. You know? I'd say, you, you seem a little grumpy. You want snack? Yes, please. You might need to go to the doctor. Okay. Um, you know, it was just super, super easy for him. Empathy. I've already talked to you about the handle in the bathroom. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the person that's going through it. Aging is hard. So I am telling you, and suggesting that it can be frightening. They certainly know that they're at the tail end of their life, not at the beginning. There may be some things they want to tell you. They don't know how to do it. They just may be really overcome with fear, confusion, sadness. Life's changing. And if they've had a lovely, wonderful, full, great life, this can be horrifying. They can be a Christian know they're going to happen, and even look forward to that. But it's still sad sometimes. They, they love you. They don't want to leave you or each other. So try your best to be as empathetic as you can. Number 10 is resources. I share this part with people more than anything. There are clothes that you can buy that make it very easy for someone who's aging why don't you get pants that have elastic in the waist? Forget the buttons, forget the zipper. And that works for men as well as women. There are bibs. If they're not embarrassed by it, get them these very nice bibs that you can put on. The utensils I've talked about, plates. There are garments for incontinence. And guess what? They will be delivered to your home in a brown box. And it doesn't have a big neon sign that says diapers. It's just very, very discreet. And these things are available to you. Get a potty chair. I can't tell you how many people I have heard of that say, oh my gosh, so-and-so fell going to the bathroom. Well, how far is the bathroom from their bed? Oh, it's all the way down the hall. Well, get them a potty chair. 
put it right next to their bed. Oh, no, we would never do that. Okay, so deal with the broken hip, the broken leg, the stubbed toe. Make it easy. And they're, they're easy to find. Get a chair for the shower. Get the, there's a, t a, a chair that goes over the bathtub. One of the coolest things is a wand that, uh, you know, your shower wand. And they have these little attachments that you can, it's with a suction, and it just sticks right on the side of your shower. So if you, I broke both of my feet at the same time. I'm very talented. And I got a wand. Oh, I had a wand. And I got this little attachment. I could pull it down, stick it right about waist level for me, and I could take my shower. It was no big deal. This works for operations, older folks. They're reachers. I love my reacher. They're little metal things. You can reach all the way across the room and pinch your husband. It's wonderful. Or you can just pick up something you've dropped on the floor. All of these things are in resource catalogs. You can Google them. You can Google resource catalogs. Usually it's under medical supplies. You can get on their mailing list and they love to send you a new catalog every month. But it's really, really helpful. And the last one is legal documents, and I probably should have said this one first. And this isn't just for aging. Everybody needs to have a do not resuscitate order if that is their wish. Everybody needs a legal attorney, I mean a power of attorney, so that if anything happens to you, the other person or someone designated at the bank or with your lawyer knows that they have access. Your bank accounts can be closed down. You can't get them forever until probate's over or whatever legal is happening. Make sure you've got somebody that can assist you. And this may sound silly, but my mom and dad probably had 40 keys, and we didn't know what they all went to. <laughs> now, neither did they, but you, you were horrified to throw them away because you thought, well, this is liable to be a safe deposit box with a thousand dollars in it. <laughs> you know, it's in this house somewhere, but it's little things like that that can actually be entertaining and divert the attention from the serious stuff. Hey, do you know what this key belongs to? And mark it, label it, get these things done, folks. That's my ten. That's my eleven points. If you've got more time, I'll give you fourteen more. But this is going to get you started. Thank you for letting me share. It's, it's been a pleasure and certainly something very close to my heart. I, uh, I truly know what a hard thing this is. I don't make light of it. And I, I hope that you will all know that you're not alone and God's there with you through all of this. Well, thank you. And I know you've said this already, but I'm just going to repeat it. If anyone is listening and feeling like, they need more resources or questions or just somebody to talk with or uh, advice on a particular situation, anything, if you send me that email, I will connect you. I happen to know where my mom lives and how to get home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will share. And on a, on a similar point, too, I just kind of wanted to plant a little seed out there because we are talking so much about, you know, loved ones who are in the final season of life. I, I guess here's my point 12. <laughs> I'll, I'll, okay. add it, I'll add it on to yours. 12. Get their story. Yes. Whether you have them write it or you write it, honestly, you reach out to me. I will find a way to get it on a recording. It does not have to be published on the podcast. It can just be a private recording for your family that you can have this loved one talking about his or her life story as as an MP3, as this little, little file that you can play back and, and not just have their story, but hear their voice share it, which is pretty special. So I just want you to know that that, that is always available uh, yes. for you as well. We could go on this topic for so much longer, but as we're closing, I wanted to ask mom if you would uh, pray specifically for the listeners who are entering in or currently in that really tough season of navigating the coming loss 
of mm. likely a parent, but maybe it's somebody else in the family, and just for protection over relationships within the family as they mm. navigate these very emotional and very turbulent waters. Um, and and then for the, the ones who are in those last moments of life, just for their peace and comfort and, and for all the people who are part of their caregiving team. Okay, I'd be happy to. Father, I ask that you give strength to every person who is giving care to someone, whether it's their parent, their child, a relative, or even those who are officially caregivers in hospitals and nursing homes and home health care. Let them have a sense of importance and the role that you have given them. Help them to see themselves as your hands and your love. Encourage them when they're weary and want to give up. Send a word to them when there just doesn't seem any praise or acknowledgement for their services. Protect the relationships. They can be so fragile. Sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, cousins. It, it, it's so interconnected. And Lord, those who are knowing or believing that they don't have much time left on this planet, give them strength. Give them some joy. As, as Jessica said, let them have the opportunity to share, whether it's their favorite color or the funniest thing that ever happened to them or the sweetest moment or even a heartbreak. Allow them to share. And Lord, we thank you for the sacrifices and ask that you allow them to be touched by someone even today who shares a hug, a kind word, a listening ear. Blessed are your caregivers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> what was it, Grandma and Grandpa? Amen. Brother Ben killed a rooster, shot a hen. And then there's more. But I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, I've asked all my cousins, and, and they, they can't finish it. But there's more. There's more. There's more. Oh, and... <clears throat> Thank you so much for uh, doing this and doing this very last minute. The beauty of having your mom as a speaker is you can say, hey, can you do this tomorrow? And she says, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. And I know I, I know just from our conversations that there's, there's so much more. But I, I hope that if you're listening, that some of these stories uh, resonated with you, gave you some things to think about. Hopefully you had a giggle in there as well as just a touched heart. So... Thank you, Mom, for sharing, and thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will hope to have you back next week for the next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Women.